Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Again, we're wrapping up our Advent series, A Child is Born, in which we've been looking at these four women singled out in the genealogy of Jesus and how God used them, again, at particular times in particular ways to push his plans to save his world forward. Four women, each of whom begins as an outsider. Whether Tamar, Rahab as Canaanites, Ruth as a Moabite, or the woman that we're going to be looking at today, Bathsheba, the the wife of Uriah, as a Hittite. Each one beginning as an outsider, but who became an insider, and by God's grace becomes part of God's plan to make a way for outsiders like you and me to become insiders as well. So if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn then to 2 Samuel chapter 11, where the story of this last woman named Bathsheba is told. Again, 2 Samuel chapter 11, but before we turn our attention to that passage, let's for a moment turn our attention one more time to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look today at what in many ways is the other side of Christmas, I pray that looking at the stories of Bathsheba and the the man she was entangled with, I pray that seeing their story, we would see our place in your story. That no matter how bad things get, no matter how messed up things are, through Jesus Christ, there's an opportunity to find our way back to you, the one we belong to. And I pray today, and as we celebrate Christmas this week, I pray even as we look forward to celebrating New Year's next week and having a a fresh start on the calendars, I pray today that we would know that more than ever before. And I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, anybody who's been around long enough knows Christmas ain't always what it's cracked up to be. It ain't all white snow and mistletoe. It ain't all popcorn strings and packaged things or jingle bells and holly smells. Because as much as there seems to be an endless list of things to do, parties to attend, packages to give, and presents to get, and always one more Christmas cookie... There's always also on the other side another Christmas stomach ache to go with it. You walk, wake up these last weeks with that, that, that feeling in the pit of your stomach. I think every day, I haven't, we haven't escaped that feeling once, like overeating, right? Underfed. But it's more than that, isn't it? 
Because more than the, the disappointment with tinsel and toys, Christmas is supposed to be the time of year you get to see the best in people. I mean, for Pete's sake, you go out on the seat, you see middle-aged men wearing red aprons, jingling a bell, getting money for charity. When else do you see that? And yet, eclipsing the good, Christmas is often when you end up seeing the worst in people. And not least, seeing the worst in yourself. Now, if this isn't you, God bless. If you're the embodiment of Saint Nick and are drunk with the Christmas spirit, if your season is spent singing with the heavenly choirs, more power to you. But for the rest of us, and and studies show that depression levels are, at this time of year, higher than usual, and that anxiety levels are higher than usual, and anger levels are higher than usual, and annoyance levels are higher than usual. For the rest of us, if you especially even fall into that category of being part of the three times more likely if you're in a committed marital relationship to go looking for love in all the wrong places. Well, I'd be willing to bet that that's not too much different here than maybe it is outside. If you're part of that, one way or another, what does Christmas have for us? What's there to celebrate? What about the rest of us? In this season that's supposed to bring out the best in people, what are those like us for whom Christmas sometimes brings out the worst, who are disappointed with ourselves and disenchanted with the the facade of the festivities? What's there to celebrate? Well, the good news is, everything. We have everything to celebrate because as much as Christmas is for those like Ruth and Rahab and even Tamar who who we encountered at their best, putting their faith in God's faithfulness to them, Christmas is also for those like Bathsheba and the man that she becomes entangled with who we encounter at their worst which is what I want you to see as we encounter them in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. Seeing first the crime they commit. Second, the cover-up they carry out. Third, the, the consequences they experience. And fourth, the comfort that nonetheless they are extended. The the crime, the cover-up, the consequences, but finally, the comfort. First, the crime they commit. And and I wanted to say on the front end, I'm using the word they very lightly because what you're going to see is that Bathsheba doesn't bear the blame in the same way as the man she becomes entangled with. But while the blame rests squarely on his shoulders for what you're about to hear and listen to and read, 
there are a few hints that she's not entirely without fault. That while a victim, she's not entirely innocent. So I'm using that word, they, very lightly, but they it is. And here's what happens when we dive in. Look at verse 1. It says, in the spring of the year, that time when kings go out to battle, a man named David, who was at that point king of God's people, who was in fact God's chosen king, sent Joab, one of his commanding officers, and his servants with him, and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged a city named Rabbah. There's a backstory to this in chapter 10, but anyway, it's the time of year where David sends out his troops to get his revenge. But David, it says, when kings were supposed to be out at battle, David remained at Jerusalem. David, who before this we find in the thick of almost every battle, David, who was famed for defending a, a, defeating a giant named Goliath, for fighting a people called the Philistines, who was always first to the fight and last to retreat, but who now, it says, remained at Jerusalem. And it happened late one afternoon, Verse 2, when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. Whether, whether he had just walked around the wrong corner or she somehow had forgotten her shower curtain or, or either of them in their own way was looking for trouble as the case may have been. We're not told that. But, but just that he laid eyes on her and, and, and laid eyes enough to tell that, that, that as it goes on, she was a beautiful woman. That when he should have been out fighting God's battle, he instead got mixed up with every man's battle. Let me just say as an aside, beware in life when you unwittingly trade the busyness of God's work for the boredom that leads to the devils. It was Chaucer who said, idle hands are the devil's tools. And how true that was for David because, because of his hands had been holding a sword his eyes wouldn't have been beholding this woman. Not to say there wasn't a, a deeper heart issue that needed dealing with, but, but you can busy yourself as an act of worship, you know. Or you can leave yourself bored on sin's playground. For David, looking and lingering, verse 3 says that he then sent and inquired about the woman, and one said... One of his servants. Is not this Bathsheba? The daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. The wife of one of your mighty men. The daughter of another. And who happens to be the granddaughter of one of your David's closest counselors. 
Isn't she off limits? Because besides you having wives of your own, this one belongs to someone else. But while the limits apply to some, doesn't mean that the limits apply to all, right? Especially not to the king, right? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him. And he lay with her, and that because of the time of the month after she returned, that the the woman, it says, conceived and sent and told David, I am pregnant. How many in life have been shocked by that news? Now, we're not told why she came to begin with, just like we're not told why she was bathing in such a public place whether she she came out of of out of fantasy or fear mere obedience or in complete naivety but what we are told is that he called and she came and that while the blame is david's to bear and i want to be clear about this this is david's issue And that his power and privilege make this more his crime than hers. The two commit this crime against God and and against God's people and against a man who had become part of God's people. They commit this crime together. That as much as the the description here cloaks a, a level of coercion on David's part, it seems to have led to what you might call a coerced consent. The crime, though, leads second to the cover-up that they carry out. Again, they, in the loosest of terms, Because it's David who goes to work after Bathsheba sends word that she's pregnant. We're not even told she knows what David is doing to rectify the situation when he sends for her husband and takes him off the battlefield and encourages him when he comes to go down while he's home to to wash his feet, to to bathe as it were. Same word in Hebrew. To bathe and, and then by implication to be with his wife. We're not even told that she knows what's going on. But what, what does Uriah do? It says in verse 9 that rather than going down to his house, he slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord. The kind of guy I want around. And when David asks why the next day, listen to Uriah's response. He says in verse 11, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. What faithfulness! of this man, this outsider who was busying himself with the business of God. 
In contrast with this king of Israel who who may have done the same in the past but was doing so no more. On the one hand, a man who, who wouldn't sleep with his own wife while the king's war waged on. And on the other hand, a king who was concerned very little with the war and instead was sleeping with this man's wife. But in the face of such faithfulness, David resorts to even viler devices. It decides to get Uriah drunk. Option number two. Because that's what drinking does. It relaxes the grip on our human convictions and gives us over to our animalistic desires. It loosens us up. And and David banks on the fact that faithfulness only runs so deep. Which is just on a side note again why You and I probably shouldn't go around drinking so much. But what David finds is that even drunk, Uriah is at least in this instance more committed to his king than to satisfying any primal instinct. But what a blow for David. Because just one night of Uriah with his wife and and all David's problems would have gone away. But since Uriah is faithful to the core, David is left with what? With no choice but to, to cover up his sins by killing off the one guy who would know it wasn't his child growing in his wife. Because obviously, coming clean isn't really an option at this point. Let's just be real, right? Confessing isn't really an option. At least when you've taken matters this much into your own hands. And besides, you're the king. You've got more to look after than just yourself. This is the most selfless thing you can do. Taking matters into your own hands. And if you're already gone this far, what's a little more collateral damage? So the only option left, at least in David's eyes, is to do just that. So finally, David uses the same privilege and power that he used to procure Uriah's wife to now procure Uriah's death. And David has him carry his own death warrant back to the battlefield where he is sacrificed on the king's altar. So finally, David uses that same privilege to carry his own ends to their farthest needs. Verse 27, when the morning was over, David sent and brought Bathsheba to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. So that David, in the end, ends up looking like the good guy. Taking this poor widow of one of his most faithful men into his care, making her his wife 
to take care of her and provide for her and to raise up on Uriah's behalf an heir for that family. And nobody thinks twice about the child. Except God. Such that the last thing we read in this chapter at the end of verse 27 is that the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. David actually writes to his commander on the field, don't let this thing displease you. All the while, what he had done displeased the Lord. Because God didn't care at this point about saving face or, or putting a better light on it or, or, or protecting his repu- the reputation even of God's king. He's concerned with one reputation, his own. When it, when it comes to, to, to us, God cares more about our character than about preserving a caricature. You know, a caricature, what you see at the carnival where, where it just is all your best features, unless it's a different kind of caricature, it's all their worst features. God is not interested in preserving the caricature. That's not what he's interested in. He's interested in your heart. So the crime that led to the cover-up leads, third, to the consequences both David and Bathsheba experience. Now, in a way, Bathsheba has already faced some of the the consequences for her actions. She's already lost her husband. To the same political power that seduced her in the first place. And, and, and whether it was a total mistake or, or, or something she got wrapped up in and never intended to go so far, certainly her grief at this point is real and compensatory. But the consequences for David are more far-reaching. And here, we're not going to walk through this verse by verse, chapter 12. I encourage you to even do that today or tomorrow, leading up to Christmas. But what I want to draw your attention to is the fact that the consequences David faces for doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord are not just an evil striking David's house from outside it, but an evil raised up to strike his house from within. That's what God says in chapter 12, verse 11. That out of the same house God had promised to preserve just a a, a few chapters before this, out of which God promised to bring a better son who would rule over David's house and establish God's house forever. Now what? Only evil will come. Because David wasn't content with his house and had to go ravaging the house of another. 
And David will experience in the, the he'll experience this in the death of four sons. If you're familiar with the story, this is the this is the indictment that David calls out on himself, being told a veiled depiction of his own story, crying out, the man should die for what he's done and repay four times what he has taken. And David will, with four of his sons, repaying fourfold what he took from Uriah, beginning with the death of the son Bathsheba bears. And the other three, all born of different wives, will will die fighting for David's throne. One will first rape David's only daughter, taking what David did, the sin of his father, with Bathsheba to its most violent end. Another, chasing David out of Jerusalem and doing in public against David what David did in secret against Uriah. When under the counsel of actually who ends up being Bathsheba's grandfather. Talk about what goes around, comes around, right? Under the counsel of Bathsheba's grandfather, his son will will go up on that same roof and do in front of all Israel, taking his wives for himself. But how much pain for such a momentary pleasure. And we would do well before wandering after such pleasure ourselves to ask whether it's worth it. You and I wander all the time. But ask whether it's worth it. To risk our reputations, to lose our livelihoods, to hurt the ones we supposedly love the most, and to spit in the face of the God who has promised us so much. Because just like with David, real choices have real consequences. Sitting in front of that screen, and you think nobody is looking. Striking up an old flame or a new one. Because God knows, and for our good, God has wired this world for us to get caught. Is it worth it? God has wired the world for the crime that leads to the cover up to lead ultimately to the consequence. Some Christmas story. Except that finally, that on the other side of that, to those who get caught and face the consequences, but who nonetheless place their faith in God's faithfulness to them, God also extends comfort. Some of us looking in from the outside want at this point only justice for a guy like this. 
As if the consequences David faced weren't enough and we'd only be satisfied if, if David was drawn and quartered and, 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 and then banished to the, to the seventh level of hell. But I just want you to think for a second that what a statement this is for those of us who know ourselves and know how much we deserve the same. That God, in His grace, grants comfort to those who nonetheless place their faith in His faithfulness to them. Which is what we see with David and Bathsheba, and especially with David, because he's the one the spotlight is on. That after indicting himself and then admitting he sinned against the Lord, which is no small admission for a guy who, is, who has gone the length David has gone to, to cover up his sins, who's already killed. It wouldn't have been too much to kill the prophet that then shows up on his doorstep too, to silence the word of God. But instead, after admitting his sin and being stripped of his infant son, taking, bearing the consequence, we read these very intriguing words. Look at verse 24. That then David comforted his wife Bathsheba. Notice it's the first time in the text that she's called his wife. That he comforts his wife and that he went in to her and lay with her and she bore a son and he called the name of that son Solomon, which means peace. But the Lord, it says, loved him, this child, and sent a message again through Nathan, that prophet. So he, David, maybe Nathan, ended up calling that child's name Jedediah, which rather than peace, meant beloved of the Lord. And let me just explain what's happening here. Because we don't typically do this. Name our kid in the hospital room, in walks the pastor, I got something different. <laughs> let me just explain what's happening. While comforting his wife, David finds comfort for himself comfort when another child is born in the place of the one that died. Comfort in the gift of another son who, who David names peace. As in it's, it's over. That, that the main rupture in my life, which is the rupture in my relationship with my God, that no matter what physical consequences are still to come, that that rupture has been restored. Peace. And yet the child David names peace. God names love. Beloved of the Lord. That's what Jedediah means which isn't this sort of fuzzy kind of thing, this fuzzy sort of affection, but is always and ever God's way of saying, this is the one I choose to push my plans forward. So that the comfort is not only the peace of knowing his relationship with his God is restored, 
but that the promise, the covenant that God made with David, that someday a son would come, a better son, to build up the house of David and the house of God as well, that that promise was not annulled. That God's way of saying, beloved of the Lord, was that this one was the one he chose to push his plans forward. Plans that would, from that point forward, always center on the establishment of David's house, though this one thing he did wrong. Even as they ultimately looked forward to the establishment of God's. This is the one I choose to be my beloved son, my promised king. But any who know the story know that this child born to Bathsheba, as beloved as he was, was merely pointing forward to a child born many years later to a girl named Mary the true beloved Son in whom God would be well pleased. Like a a set of keys hanging under the Christmas tree. It's not there to be the gift, but it's for the car parked in the driveway. I have no idea what that feels like. And yet that child born to Mary would establish David's chosen line, David's house like Solomon never could and God's house like only Jesus was ever able to. As the great, great ancestor of not only Bathsheba, but of Tamar and of Rahab and of Ruth before her. And for you and I, is the reason why Christmas isn't just for those who put their faith in God's faithfulness at their best, but for those of us who do so, like Bathsheba, like David, at our worst. Because we're the ones that king was born to save. With that, And invite our worship team forward to lead us as we sing of his birth, as we light our final candle, the candle of Christ, and welcome again that gift that God gave so long ago, even as we look forward to his return. Would you stand and sing? Bathsheba bore two sons, one that died on David's behalf and the other that took his throne. My prayer for you this Christmas is that you would celebrate the one true son to whom both those predecessors point. The one who died that we might live and the one who lives, that on our behalf, death might die. 
Merry Christmas. for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible dot O-R-G.